Hey, welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ham. I'm feeling pretty good right now. Uh, coming off the heels of a Dave Matthews concert this past weekend. Um, yeah, Dave Matthews. Went with my wife, her cousin, her cousin's husband. We're all pretty close. We had a good time. Um, you know, historically, I'm into a few songs of the band, but it's not my genre of music. I'm much more of a hip-hop and R&B guy. Um, and, you know, a lot of like pop, um, some kind of neo-soul sometimes. But, you know, so while I, I knew maybe just three or four of the songs, I really appreciated the music and I appreciated the concert. and had a fantastic time. And, you know, I didn't even partake in any of the substances outside of just having a few drinks going into the concert. But I really, really gravitated to um, appreciating the the, the, the talents of the musicians in the band, looking at, at and thinking about how the how the music, how the the instruments were are constructed and how they how they sound when they're played and the nuance that goes into playing them and you know just the colors that were around when when these solos were going on. I swear, I, I did not touch the wacky weed last night. Um, and I'm not saying I, I wouldn't have liked to. It just just it wasn't in the cards uh, um, for this concert and you know. I will say that this this concert, the, the demographic was firmly 30 to 45, firmly that that age range. I mean, the the following is age. It's not like there were just young people that were there. Like that might have been a Dave Matthews concert the first time I went 20 years ago. It was definitely just like a, 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 a old millennial young Gen X crowd and um, definitely a lot of parents. And, you know, even earlier in the day before the concert, uh, my wife and I went to uh, a local bagel store and the owner made a joke about the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. And this is a joke to a 20 to 20 something year old that was on, on the line in front of us. And this this girl had, you know, you might as well have told her that, um, I don't know, like like the planet um, Zulu Zulu exists um, in our solar system. I mean, she had no fucking idea what the owner was talking about. Never heard of Dave Matthews Band. Didn't know what the hell Seinfeld was, and it just it just really really made me feel old. And and that's happening more and more as I'm climbing through my 30s. And it's terrifying that you know there's people half my age that are in college. Uh, there's people born the year that I graduated from high school that can legally drink next year. I mean, holy shit. Anyway, so on today's episode, we're going to unpack friendships, the complexity of friendships, the things that you're not necessarily told. When you're a kid and you don't necessarily draw the conclusions about even as, as you're aging and, and coming of age uh, in, in, into adulthood. So stay tuned. So if you're a sports fan, chances are in life you've dealt with the front runner. So a front runner is somebody who says, "Yo, yeah, hey, you know, I'm from Toledo, Ohio, but... I'm a Yankee fan because my dad's half brother's ex-wife is from uh, is, is from the Bronx. Or, you know, I also like Alabama football because I drove through there on a college road trip on the way to New Orleans and really had a had a great um, had had a great bucket of wings when I, when I went out to dinner there one night. Um, or, you know, I also love the the Patriots because when I was younger, that was my favorite team to use in Madden before they were good. Everybody knows that guy or, or gal, you know, somebody who's who uh, who's from 
I don't know, like Omaha, Nebraska, but where's their Yankees at every day? Uh, you know, maybe you even were that person. Shit, man, I, I was. In the mid-90s, for about two and a half years as I hit my teenage years, I was a Packers fan because I liked the starter jacket colors. You know, Brett Favre had a cool-sounding name uh, that didn't really seem like it should, it should sound the way that it was spelled. And, you know, the team that my dad taught me to embrace, the New York Jets, were a complete laughingstock. And, you know, sometime in 1997, I want to say, after the Packers lost to the Broncos and, and the upset of, uh, by John Elway in the Super Bowl, I, I went back, perhaps foolishly, to the putrid Jets. And uh, here I am, 22 years later, you know, three title game losses, zero Super Bowls, a lot of losing seasons, and a revolving door of GMs, quarterbacks, and coaches. I'm still a friggin' Jets fan. Um, but anyway, as, as it relates to front-running, I mean, front-running can show up in more ways than just following sports. You know, it's, it's an illegal activity in the financial world. It can land you prison time. Um, when a broker trades for his own account ahead of his clients or her clients on a recommendation that XYZ stock is going to have a profitable stretch, that's front-running, and it's illegal. But also friendships, very much like sports and trading, can be front-running in the same way. You know, you know when, when you're a young adult in particular, things are often just fantastic. Life is great. And it's easy to be friends with somebody when you're taking fireball shots on a warm June night at a rooftop bar. That's easy. It's easy to be friends with somebody at a $100,000 wedding on a vineyard out in Napa when you're in your late 20s, early 30s. You know, it's easy to be friends when your buddy got a promotion or your buddy's fiance got into her her top grad school program. You know, let's be honest about friendships, all right? With friendships, there's usually chemistry, but they often start out of convenience. You know, Mikey used to live down the street. Ellen and I were in the same math class. You know, maybe it's a freshman dorm, fraternity, a sorority, or first job out of college. But, you know, according to a recent study, and this is is a study uh, in psychology today, um, cited by Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White, that there are five common hallmarks of a friendship. So the five hallmarks of a friendship include, one, in the company of a person, you feel pleasure as opposed to an obligation. And in short, what that means is it's pleasure over duty. That's pretty easy to, to, to embrace. All right, so that's, that's number one. Um, hallmark number two, you know, both sides can both express needs and accommodate needs over a reasonable ter- period of time. It doesn't have to be this, pre- this quid pro quo Oh, you know, I did you a favor uh, this Sunday. You better be doing me a favor next weekend. In general, that's, you know, we'll, we'll call this long-term reciprocity. So over the long haul, you both can express needs and ask for things as well as accommodate needs when, when, something is, as, when a favor or something is asked of you. Uh, the third thing is both sides are driven to make an effort to spend time. So it's a mutual alliance. It's not one person driving, driving everything. It's not... Um, the other side, always the one asking for plans or for, for things to do or, or, or texting or calling. It's, it's a mutual alliance. So different from long-term reciprocity, it's actually like willingness to make contact and be, and be friends by both, by both parties. So pleasure over duty, long-term reciprocity, mutual alliance are, are, are the first three. Number four is um, both sides respect the other as a person. So that's respecting them as a friend as a spouse, as a, as a professional, as a parent, 
as a citizen of the earth. All right, let's call that mutual respect. Do you respect that person in general? Um, So that's number four. And then number five is being able to weather varying degrees of commitment or life crisis. So AKA, that's shit hitting the fan. Can you, and, and to me, that's the most, one of the most important pillars and hallmarks of a friendship. And it's the one that probably is one of the later ones to get tested. So the five ones are pleasure over duty, long-term reciprocity, mutual alliance, mutual respect, and shit hitting the fan. All right? So, you know, friendships, as I mentioned, they start out of convenience and then they could coast along really easily when people are... Um, going through kind of the, the cookie cutter times in their lives, you know, high school, college, even the few years after college when you're single, drinking a lot, going out, enjoying social milestones like weddings and bachelor parties. You know, they, they can even morph and strengthen when people start coupling up. And this, this time period really is like, you, you know, your teenage years through your um, you know, early to mid 20s, sometimes even later than that. But I think in general, when you start getting into your late 20s and definitely early 30s, shit very often hits the fan. You know, shit hit the fan in my life when I, when I entered my mid-30s, and that, that's a story for another day. Um, but when that happens, can a friendship endure that? You know, when comparisons become more real, when you have marriages, kids, houses, jobs, um, cars, can a friendship stay the course when you're... When it's, when it's human nature to compare often to, to, to the buddy of yours that you've been friends with for X amount of years. You know, when time priorities change and free time shrinks, as you're getting married, as you're starting a family, as your job might become more demanding, as you're moving out to a different location, maybe out of a city into a suburb or across a different part of the country or, or somewhere else, who is still a part of that pie? You know, when politics become no longer a footnote. And part of your value system, your ethos, and your life priorities are intertwined with your politics. Can a friendship hold up? You know, for me, like not by design, but I tend to surround myself with, with other people that tend to be progressive or independents. I mean, you know, I, I, I say I'm, I'm unapologetically a liberal. Um, I would just say probably by a three or four to one ratio, my friends are, are falling to the, that, that bucket of progressive or independent, right, rather than conservative. This is not by design. And as I'm reflecting on this now, as I'm in my late 30s, you know, I realize how the subtle way we view and process the world mirrors political affiliations. And those that we like and enjoy the company of, um, you know, subconsciously formed from some kind of intangible energy. And often that's a matching value system. It doesn't mean everybody has to be alike. It doesn't mean that it's healthy all the time to be in our echo chamber and not welcome new ideas. But I think certainly the way that we formulate our friendships and who we really enjoy the company of with, with, um, without, without consistent conflict, um, those tend to be people that are similar politically. And if they're not, you know, I certainly have friends that, that are on the, a different part of the spectrum than I am. I mean, as long as you have like a history and mutual respect for the other person and know that person to their core is a good person that can endure, but when it's like a when when it's questionable in any way, I, I I think that challenges things a lot. So you know, time, when time priorities are changing, when comparisons are out there, when politics come out come into the come come out of the periphery and more into the forefront, and then something like when tragedy strikes, when a loved one passes away, can a friendship for it hold up? Um, when a marital crisis happens, cheating, abuse, addiction, is a friend still willing to be there when it's not always like the easiest conversation to sit in? 
You know, you know, depth and authenticity, I think, really get tested in friendships over time. You know, analogous to a relationship. You know, think about it when you first start dating somebody. It's easy to go on the first few dates with a guy or gal when it's all about looks, going out together, meeting each other's friends, sleeping together, small talk. But when, when you go on that, where that first long car ride with that person or plane ride, or you have multiple days alone to talk about life, you know, dreams, preferences, family shit, values. You know, can that relationship hold up? You know, friendships have this, are, are tested in the same sort of way. So getting back to that, that uh, some of the studies that are out there on this, um, according to a study quoted in an independent article, friendships peak at 25. So... A 25-year-old male is accumulating friends throughout their entire life, or female, but um, they are accumulating friends starting probably as early as, uh, as preschool, maybe elementary school, middle school, then into high school, college, early 20s when you first start making, making cash and having your own job. And you know, there, there's definitely attrition that happens at, at the different points where you might be transitioning in life, but in general, you're, you're adding a lot more than you're subtracting. Now, the average 25-year-old male contacts 19 different people per month. That's almost a different person for two-thirds of the days of the month. Now, for a 25-year-old female, it's a little bit more selective. It's about a person and a half left, less, so it's about 17 and a half. But by age 39, so less than 15 years after 25, um, you know, and I'm going to be 39 uh, soon, soon enough, um, you know, men contact only about 12 people. And women contact 15. So that's a 14% drop for women. And it's a 37% drop for men. That's significant. You know, I as an exercise just went back to my own wedding list. You know, I, I got married about five years ago. My wife and I invited 171 people. You know, 77 of them were family members. So about 45%. And the other 55%, so more than half, were friends. And when I looked at that list, I, I tried to do like a really honest assessment. There were, I put people into three buckets. I put bucket into people that I probably would still invite, that I probably would not invite, and maybes. So out of those 94 friends, there were 42 that I probably would invite. So that's about 45% only. And the other 55% are either people that I would not invite or, or are maybes. So if I'm even just taking half of those maybes, then just five years later, I'm not inviting out of the three people that I invited as friends, I'm not inviting more than half of the wedding. And I can only imagine what that's going to look like 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, 25 years down the road. You know, I'll, I'll give you a, just a, a, a personal anecdote of something that happened with me and a friendship. Um, so I've had, a, I would say, three close friendships that fell apart to a degree. And it doesn't mean that they're not salvageable for, for the rest of the time, but for the time being, they've, they've fallen apart. And two of them were due to gossiping and getting involved in business um, unsolicited during a crisis that I had. And then one, which I, which I actually find even particularly confusing, was, was, was literally ghosting. You guys all know the term ghosting, right? Like it's something that I think is, is bigger in the millennial, or the younger millennial, I should say, because I'm, I'm, I'm technically on the uh, the very older end of the millennial spectrum, but the younger millennials and Generation Z, they certainly do this. It's ghosting, you know, and this is a generation that, that grew up texting since they were like teenagers. And what it means is if, if you are 
Um, you know, you, you could ghost somebody where if they're, you, you dated them, you might have spent some time together and all of a sudden like you just go radio silent, ignore every mode of communication. It's ghosting them. It's literally disappearing. And, um, you know, you could be ghosted as well. And, and when, I, when I look back at some of like my casual dating and things like that, it, I've, it's probably gone both ways. I, I, I think I've probably been ghosted more than I ghost people because I, I tend to want to resolve things. It's just my own personality. But um, I was ghosted by one of my friends. And this thing is really, really confusing to me. And, you know, it's essentially like in a nutshell what happened. I mean, this was a, a near decade and a half friendship. This wasn't just kind of a flash in the pan friend. I mean, there's a decade and a half friendship. Um, the couple friendship between my wife and his wife and the four of us was for a large swath, swath of that time. You know, we spent hours and hours dining and drinking and traveling over bodies of water in the same metro area to spend time together and um, made time, especially as even as we were you know, getting into our early to mid 30s when, when our, our, our pie, so to speak, might have been shrinking. You know, this guy was a groomsman at my wedding. And, you know, when shit hit the fan, when, 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 when my wife and I had a crisis, this couple was so incredibly supportive. So incredibly supportive. Um, so much so that when, when my daughter was born, um, shortly after that, um, we had asked, we had asked uh, this couple to, um, to, to be the godparents. And there was a little bit of reluctance on their part, which they expressed based on their religious views. I mean, neither are particularly religious or um, are, are, are even that spiritual. And, um, you know, my, my wife and I, you know, still said that we loved them and we wanted them to be a part of uh, our daughter's life and, and be confidants. And at some point we reversed course regarding them as godparents. And we still obviously invited them to the christening, apologized. And this is well over a month in advance of the christening. This is a... Uh, you know, we, we just contemplated this maybe like a week or so after we had asked them and after they had accepted. And there was a good initial response and it was heartfelt and um, it seemed like, okay, like it was just like this is a formality. You know, we're not going to be the godparents, but we, we love you guys and we still want to be a part of your your daughter, your kids' lives or for decades to come. And what was really confusing is the christening came and there was nothing, literally like no uh, attendance, no RSVP. No, you know, gift or anything being sent and like no acknowledgement that even happened. That was really confusing. And, you know, there was no follow up about plans or anything like that. I mean, there was very minimal response. And at some point, um, you know, my wife had texted, I think, our group thread and said, hey, is everything OK? And my, 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 my friend, we'll call him Bob, responded and was like, oh, you know, my mother, you know, there's there was a, some stuff going on in my in my family and, you know, family emergency. Um and that was really the last point of point of contact. And there's been literally radio silence since then. This is almost two years ago now at this point. Um, and radio silence to texts, to calls, you know, things that might have been, you know, uh, joking texts or, 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 you know, Google messages, more serious things. And finally, I sent an email apologizing for any potential offense, but feeling a lot of confusion. And I even left open the possibility that, hey, you know, maybe it's not all about me. I mean, maybe this friend was actually going through something substantial. And um, literally, I mean, now again, nothing. No response. Two years. And I actually saw this guy when I was in a hurry on the street recently. And there's probably about a 50-50 chance that he might have seen me back. And he said nothing to me. And there was no, you know, I find the whole interaction 
in general at this point to be really cowardly. You know, give me a chance to make amends even if you don't want to be friends with me anymore. That's how I see it. There's been too much history. This, I mean, there wasn't a lot of like, unless there's like literally like years and years of just pent up resentments without expression, this thing came out of left field. And frankly, I'm feeling sad about it. I'm feeling abandoned. I'm feeling angry, confused, all of the above still. But at this point, regardless of the reason of, of what happened, barring some kind of conspiracy, I'm out on the friendship. I'm out. So as I climb into my mid-30s, I see friendships more clearly than ever, all right? They're ever-evolving, but I certainly am seeing them more clearly. And this isn't just me being just cheesy and cliche, but my wife is my best friend. She truly is. And it's not just about us being lovers or sexually or romantically compatible only, but um, we are actually truly best friends. You know, if I experience anything, I want her to experience it too. You know, as our relationship strengthens and we live in the same community and as we build our a family, our friendships often have to be compatible together. And if we're looking at our friendships, I mean, our friendships now are about as deep and authentic as they've ever been. You know, we have probably four or five couple friendships where they're, they're friendships where, you know, the guy and I get along, the, the two women get along, and the opposite gender spouses, spouses get along too, where we could all spend time together in any pairing and be able to have a deeper or, or meaningful conversation. And um, it's a really fun dimension of friends. And it's different than, than anything I've experienced at this point in life. And um, it's just, you know, being able to go on double dates with these people and have family play dates and we enjoy drinks together. The kids play well and they're around the same ages. I mean, it's, it's a really special, uh, um, I guess, nuance of, of, of friendship. And you know, even just having guys dinners with local dads that are relatively new friendships, but they share the same interests and values and respect their partners the same way that I do. Um, that's, that's really cool. And that's not to say that I don't have older friendships that are still, that are still solid. I mean, I still have a text thread with a couple of friends on the West Coast. Um, and I have a text thread with a half a dozen college friends. And we're all dispersing in different directions through, the, the, through and out of the New York metro area. But there's a lot of substance. There's fun banter. We try to do quarterly dinners. Our spouses get along and our, the wedding circuit's kind of come to a close uh, from my circle of friends. We're all either, you know, for the most part married and most of us have kids. But, um, you know, it's just great that, uh, that the friendships are still there. And uh, I'm kind of seeing a, a whole spectrum of, of friends, both, both new and old, that are, that are doing well. And, um, you know, I'm not about the legacy friendships at this point in life. I'm just not. And those friendships to me are... Um, are ones that, uh, you know, I, I'm not just going to be friends with you if you're just because we, we, we started becoming friends in college and we were friends through our 20s. It doesn't it doesn't mean shit. You know, it, it, if you're not going to be there for me and you're not willing to be there when, when times are hard or have conversations or or own shit, if, if I call you out or or or, or you know, or, or, or tell me if I'm pissing you off or upsetting you and offending you, um, then I don't want to be friends with you. Point blank, period. And I'm, I'm not going to waste my time when time is valuable in just um, holding on to those friendships. So to put a bow on this all, um, to wrap up this friendship piece, I mean, I think the lesson in this is that we're constantly changing as people. You know, I think this is something that maybe, yeah, that, might, that might be obvious to those of you that are older and listening, but... You know, for some reason, I, I thought that all oh, the, the most significant changes are going to happen in life. And, and once I'm 25 or 30, I am who I am. And that's just not true. 
Um, there's the old, the old, the old adage out there that that I've heard before that that goes something like, "It takes forty years to make a man." I remember hearing this thing like three, five, seven years ago, and just getting pissed off by it. Like, "Oh, what do you mean?" You know, this is something that just baby boomers and older people say, and they're being patronizing to the younger generations. And I think there's some validity to it. I think, you know, we earn a lot of stripes uh, through our, our first four decades of life. And it really takes us to about 40 for us to kind of realize, like, to really have, have a grasp on who we are as people, um, what we care about in this world, who means a lot to us and who doesn't. And like anything else in this universe, I mean, friendships are not static. Um, Friendships are work. You know, they take honesty, they take kinship, and they're work just like a, a romantic relationship. And if you are losing friends, you and those friends might be changing and moving in different directions. That certainly happens. But you got to ask yourself. You got to ask yourself this. Are you evolving? And I don't just mean is your bank account growing. As a human being, we evolve multidimensionally emotionally, spiritually. Are you the same person as you were two years ago? Five years ago? A decade ago? Are you evolving? Because if you aren't evolving, if you aren't the person evolving in a a friendship dynamic and you've lost a friend or multiple friends, maybe you are actually being left in the dust by people that are. Just some food for thought. All right, welcome back to the Chris Ham Podcast. Um, so I'm going to end with a couple of rants. Uh, the first one's going to be elevator button pushers. All right, so you might you might experience this if you live in a major metro area, especially or even any any place that has multiple floors. You're going up or down an elevator, and you're in them with a few people, and you're making a few stops either up or down. Do you, do you ever see that guy or that gal that, that's pushing the, the closed door button literally every, every time somebody gets on or off the elevator? It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Honestly. I mean, where are you going that's that important? And if, you're, if you really have to get somewhere, just take the stairs. You know, it's ridiculous. I mean, if I'm in the elevator and it stops five times, how much fucking time are you possibly saving by pressing the door closed button? You know, I'm really convinced that those, those elevator buttons don't even work. But just think about it. I mean, if, if you're stopping five times, you know, say for some reason, like if you press that button, the door closes a second earlier, maybe two seconds earlier. I mean, you're saving literally 10 freaking seconds. Is that really going to make a difference? It's such a stupid thing and it shows such impatience. And if you're the person who's doing it, you know, maybe you might want to go download some kind of app or, or go to some kind of meditation retreat because it's ridiculous. You know, have some patience. Honestly, we all have busy lives and want to get places and, and uh, you know, a lot of elevator stops are annoying to everybody. But every time somebody does that, if I'm getting off the elevator before that person, I'm so tempted to literally just, just, just press every single button between my floor and that person's floor. But um, that's my first rant. Second rant, elderly drivers. This is going to be a very touchy thing to talk about. But, you know, I'm far from a perfect driver. You know, I haven't had a lot of accidents in my in my uh, you know twenty two plus years or so of driving, um, I haven't. Um, but you know, I will say um, that I, I guess I've been driving for a little over twenty one years um, at this point. Whatever. Um, uh, but 
you know, as I'm driving more and more, it's apparent to me that as we age in life, there's a lot of, you know, driving, as I've said before, brings up our best and worst character asset, assets and flaws. It just does. But, you know, as we're aging, our driving erodes massively. At some point when we hit between, somewhere between probably 70, maybe 75. Vision gets worse. Depth perception, depth perception gets worse. Our reflexes slow down. Our pace in general just slows down. You know, why not give a road test again at 75 or 80? I can't tell you the amount of times that an elderly person isn't signaling properly as they're changing lanes, they're drifting in a lane, they're driving too slow in a place where they shouldn't be. There's just a lot of erratic driving, there's constant examples of it. And I don't want to sound like an ageist. You know, listen, my parents are in their, at this point, late 60s, all right? So they're not far away from 70. They're not even that far away from 80. But let's be honest, and like you know, I'm I'm curious if you were to, if you were to ask me this in uh, in, in thirty thirty five years from now, um, how I'm going to feel as I'm approaching seventy, well, as I'm as I'm crossing seventy, and um, if I'm going to feel that way about driving, and maybe at that point we're all going to have automatic cars anyway, so it's not going to matter. But elderly drivers, I mean, I really think there should be a road test at some point again. There really should be, and I don't have the statistics on. I'm, I might be completely shooting from the hip, but. I, I know I'm not alone in feeling this way. Thanks for listening to the Chris Ham podcast. Please follow me on Twitter at Chris, the letter N, Ham. Your support and feedback are both incredibly valuable as I learn and grow. So please tell me what you like, what you don't like, and feel free to suggest topic ideas. Take it easy, friends. Be well.